Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. If this economic system is producing a world of extreme inequality, in which half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day U.S. In other words, if this economic system that now blankets the globe produces a world in which half the people live in abject poverty, what is it that we're supposed to be celebrating? That's the voice of Professor and author Robert Jensen. On this week's show, we speak to Dr. Jensen about the current economic crisis in relation to the other fundamentalisms in society, so stay tuned. We're very privileged this morning to be speaking with Dr. Robert Jensen. He's uh, written many books. One of his books is on imperialism. And I I wanted to invite him because I think the discussion around what is just in the world and what we accept as a legitimate narrative of our lives. Um, Dr. Robert Jensen is a professor of journalism at the Austin University in Texas. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Jensen. Great to be with you, Sylvia. Now, society seems to quickly have uh, moved to demonize and to uh, persecute a particular race, a, a people, a group of people, on assumptions of who they are by base of their color, their skin. And I wanted to talk about these narratives that we are told, because there seem to be a mere narrative of the world and... Um, and it, it affects how we see each other, how we see the world. Um, how would you describe that, that narrative that seems to be all pervasive? Well, you know, here in the United States, that narrative is quite clear. Uh, and it's been in place, especially since the end of World War II. It's a narrative of essentially the inherent right of the United States to run the world. Uh, and even in mainstream politics where there appears to be a debate about that, that underlying assumption is not challenged. Well, underneath that, the debate within the Republican and Democratic Party assumed the American right to intervene at will around the world, and the only question is, should we be doing it here? That's been the case, as I said, ever since the end of World War II, and it defines conventional American politics in the United States. It's connected to a longstanding belief in the United States in what some people call American exceptionalism, the idea that somehow the United States is an exception to history. It has either a divine right or some natural right, if not theological, at least natural, uh, to use its power in whatever way it feels advances the cause. Uh, Now, that's usually in public called the cause of freedom and justice, although in reality it's the cause of deepening and expanding American dominance around the world. Now, Within conventional politics in the United States, that's all a given. You don't debate that. You just argue about how that should go forward. Outside of conventional politics, of course, we're trying to call all of that into question. And the the lesson from all this, of course, is that we can always get trapped within debates that are defined by assumptions we wouldn't accept. And it's always very important to step back and ask, what are the assumptions? The other places is most important is in discussions about economic policy. Uh, for instance, during the financial meltdown, questions about should the government engage, uh, should the government give money to these corporations, should it increase regulation, all of that assumes 
that corporate capitalism is the appropriate economic system. So while we may want to engage in debates about specific policy questions, we also want to step back, I think, and ask critical questions about the nature of the system and whether we accept the assumptions of that system. As somebody on the political left with feminist and quite radical feminist political roots, I tend not to accept those assumptions and those definitions. And that's an important part of politics. That's a wonderful point you make because I was I always think of it in terms of myths. Um, growing up in Latin America, we learn not just from textbooks but from stories and from the the the, the myth that we're told and you know and sort of trying to connect us to a history that is long lost in books. But there are myths in our textbooks that are assumed, as you point out, as fact. The one that I think is most prevailing, a lot of people die from wars, but more people are dying from hunger. And that one, I think, is surrounded around this uh, myth of society as a market, society uh, as a marketplace where every citizen is a customer and we're supposed to act in our own interests. How do we deconstruct that? Because with, behind that myth, there are architects. And I think if we know who the architects are, then we can either decide are our interests with them or should we be thinking of alternatives? Well, that's a great point. I, essentially, I think what you're saying is that it's easy to slip into fundamentalism. Now, usually we talk about fundamentalism in the context only of religion. And we know that there are, in fact, fundamentalists in every major religious tradition. There are Muslim fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists, Hindu fundamentalists, Jewish fundamentalists, and it's relatively easy to step back and critique that kind of fundamentalism, because it's based on an absolute certainty about the truth of a claim, and it leads to pretty, usually pretty reprehensible behavior, <laughs> because when one believes in the absolute certainty of a claim, uh, one is encouraged to act arbitrarily and in authoritarian ways. So we critique a, li a religious fundamentalism, but I think, as you're suggesting, we also have to step back and ask what other fundamentalisms are loose in the world. We talked about a kind of national fundamentalism already that's especially important in the United States, given U.S. power, the belief in the inherent nobility of the United States as it conducts itself in the world. Well, that's a kind of hyper-patriotic fundamentalism, and I've called it national fundamentalism in writing and, and think it should be assessed the same way we assess other kinds of fundamentalism and we should be afraid of it. You're also talking about what many people call market fundamentalism or economic fundamentalism, in which it's assumed that this capitalist system with which we now live is the sane, rational, and in fact natural way to organize an economy and that it can't be challenged. Now, we've had a particularly intense hyper-fundamentalist uh, version of this, essentially for the last three or four decades in the United States, uh, that's sometimes called free market fundamentalism, this belief that essentially markets can do no wrong. Well, we discovered what happened in 2008 when this market in these complex credit derivatives and things collapsed. Well, that was a free market. It was probably the freest market in the world. It was a, a new kind of financial instrument without regulation, and it destroyed the economy. So uh, that's another place we have to start looking. And so the particular version of that we've had ever since Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, let's say, uh, has proved itself to be a disaster. And that free market, that intense free market fundamentalism, 
I think is just part of a larger capitalist fundamentalism that asserts the unchallengeability, you might say, of corporate capitalism. And we need to step back and look. You're pointing at figures like poverty, hunger, that should lead to a pretty simple question. If this economic system that we're being told is the most beautiful in the history of the world, is producing a world of extreme inequality in which half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day U.S. In other words, if this economic system that now blankets the globe produces a world in which half the people live in abject poverty, what is it that we're supposed to be celebrating? I mean, just even a cursory look at the reality of the world would suggest that this economic system is a human disaster. It's not only a human disaster, of course, it's an ecological disaster because the growth imperative in capitalism has exacerbated the human assault on the ecosystem. So we now live in an economic system that produces incredible levels of injustice, of social misery, and is accelerating the assault on the living world that may make it impossible for the world to sustain human life on the scale that we understand. Now, that's allegedly an economic system that is a, you know, a miracle, and we hear all these things. But again, you know, anybody can step back and, and see that this fundamentalism, just like religious fundamentalism and national fundamentalism, that this fundamentalism is a complete disaster. Another fundamentalism that you talk about in your book, All My Bones Shake, is technology. And looking at the Fukushima disaster, I, I want to ask you about uh, this blind faith in technology and, uh, and the mechanical ways that we tend to see the world. Why should we be aware and uh, uncomfortable with this kind of fundamentalism towards technology? People say, well, that just makes our lives better. Others have used this term, and I use it a lot, technological fundamentalism, which I would define as the belief that high-energy, high-technology solutions to human problems are always desirable, including high-energy, high-technology solutions to the problems created by high-energy, high-technology solutions. Uh, that's the ultimate fundamentalism. When you try a, a path, it fails and to correct, you try it again. That's a kind of, almost a kind of, literally a kind of insanity, yet that's what this culture is doing over and over again. So take climate change. We, through human intervention into the ecosystem, uh, we've created uh, climate disruption, which threatens our very lives. So how do we approach the solution to that problem? Well, instead of asking whether human beings can scale back their energy use dramatically, whether we can rethink the way we live on this planet. What the dominant culture is doing is searching for technological solutions, whether it's biofuels or the tar sands or geoengineering, literally crazy schemes that are not going to work. And that's the kind of fundamentalism that actually scares me the most because one can imagine correcting for other kinds of fundamentalism. You know, religious fundamentalism, one can argue a more open-minded approach to those human questions. With imperialism and national fundamentalism, one can see that in history, those fundamentalisms have faded as nation-states have not been able to sustain their imperial power. Economic systems have changed throughout history, and we can imagine, even though it's very difficult, a transition out of capitalism. Uh, 
But this technological fundamentalism is really quite literally a deal-breaker. It may result in a, a planet that is not inhabitable for human beings in, the, in the, the ways that we understand them. So I think we should all be very afraid of that technological fundamentalism. We're not going to solve the problems we've created by embracing the very norms, ethics, and ideas that created the problem in the first place. If we know all this, um, why is it so difficult to change? And then I was thinking about the way in which uh, those affected by these kinds of fundamentalisms are themselves the victims and the perpetrators of that oppression as we accept this as natural. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the, na the naturalization of these fundamentalisms How does it happen, and how do we break out of it? I would call it the naturalization of hierarchy. I think the reason human beings do that is quite simple. No matter what tradition one comes out of, whether it's a secular or a religious tradition, or whatever the specific religious tradition might be, there are some principles now that pretty much define a decent human community. Principles around the inherent dignity of all people, or... Uh, a need for solidarity and social connection, and, of course, some commitment to a kind of rough equality. You know, virtually every philosophical or religious system posits those as important values, dignity, solidarity, equality. Yet we live in systems, capitalism, nationalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. We live in systems that, instead of fostering those values, are directly against those values, because those systems I just mentioned are all based on hierarchy. They're all based on the idea that there's a group with more power, more wealth, more status, and a group with less. Well, hierarchy is inherently in opposition to our most deeply held moral and spiritual values. And I don't just mean my moral and spiritual values. I mean everybody's. We all hold these values, yet we live in systems that make it difficult to achieve them. And in fact, I think those systems are directly opposed to those values because we live in systems that are defined by hierarchy, and hierarchy is antithetical to those values. So how do you manage to, to make sense of that when you're living in those systems? Well, one of the ways we do it, I think, as human beings is to, as you pointed out, naturalize that hierarchy, to pretend that, that hierarchy isn't a product of choice, but is a natural part of being human. So men are naturally dominant over women because we have slightly larger bodies or whatever the argument might be, that Americans are naturally dominant over the rest of the world because of some unique aspect of American history, that white people are naturally on top of the world by virtue of some special gifts we have, or perhaps more profoundly, that human beings are naturally designed to run the world by virtue of our big brains. Well, that kind of hierarchy gets naturalized. Instead of saying, well, this is something people have chosen and we can choose differently, people throw up their hands and say, that's just the way it is. That not only those particular hierarchies, but hierarchy in general is inevitable. And I hear this from students, I hear it from older people, that there's no way to live outside of hierarchy. And I think that's the fundamental question. Is there a way? Well, within very small organizations, we often live outside of hierarchy. All of us have probably been part of social groups or political groups that tried to create an alternative to hierarchy. And as we look at human history, we can see that for most of human history, when we lived in small hunting-gathering bands, 
we lived in fairly egalitarian structures. I don't want to be romantic about it and suggest that, you know, there's some sort of perfect golden age of human existence on the planet. But the, the, the evidence suggests that those small band-level societies, probably no bigger than 150, the way we lived for most of our evolutionary history, that in fact those were profoundly more egalitarian than the societies we live in today. So we have both a personal experience of living outside of hierarchy, and we usually like it when it happens, and we have a, a history that's not defined solely by hierarchy. Yet we convince ourselves that hierarchy is inevitable. I've actually had students tell me or ask me, how in the world could you have a productive economy without corporations and hierarchy? That tells you that, that people are being socialized in a world in which these institutions, like the corporation, are being naturalized. In other words, people actually believe that we would die without them, that we wouldn't even be able to produce our own food and shelter. Well, I simply say to those students, well, have corporations been around throughout human history? No. Did people feed and shelter themselves before corporations? Of course. So we have the most obvious evidence that corporations are not necessary to our survival. That's the kind of discussion we need to have. And of course, in the dominant culture, especially in the mass media, these conversations are very, very difficult to have. I think that it's also important to recognize that um, as we have tried to naturalize these hierarchies to justify the privilege some of us enjoy and others are excluded from, uh, that education has become a very powerful tool. What would an education that in, you know, teaches us the practice of liberation be like? Well, I think you're right. It is very important. That's why you're seeing, in the United States at least, a concentrated attack on public education. I don't want to uh, suggest that I think public education as exists in the United States is a very good institution. I think there's lots of problems with it. But it is one of the last places where the kind of critical thinking you're talking about is possible. And that's why I think there's an attack on it. I, I think that people with power and wealth want to shut down any space for that kind of critical thinking. So we do need to defend public education, not pretending it's without flaws, but trying to make it stronger. And I think your question is very important. What would that critical thinking education be like? Well, first of all, it would not have the kind of blinders that contemporary education has. If you try to teach some of these you know, critiques of fundamentalism, uh, you're going to be pushed to the margins of any system. High school teachers know perfectly well that it's very difficult to teach too much critical thinking without getting in trouble. Uh, so the first thing would be to open up the, the spectrum of what we're willing to consider as important education. And then it would also be, I think everybody understands, we need to move to a system that empowers students to do that critical thinking. Right now, the, the system is too much based on lecturing and testing. Uh, and we've got to get away from the idea that you can judge an, uh, an educational system by how well people perform on standardized tests. It's very difficult to test critical thinking, uh, at least the kind of critical thinking we're talking about. Yet this mania in the United States for testing, testing, and more testing is part of the project that is destroying public education. And so there's some real dramatic changes. Open up ideologically so that people can teach these kinds of questions without fear of reprisal and try to beat back this 
obsession with testing? I think those are the two critical questions. Where do you find your inspiration? I mean, faced with students who can't even imagine a world uh, change, uh, that ability to imagine seems to have been lost. Where do you find your inspiration to continue to struggle? Well, I suppose I find my inspiration in part from the students I teach. When I do try to, to pursue this kind of teaching, there are always students who respond quite positively, and it's their response that keeps me going. If I tried to teach these kinds of issues and every single student looked at me like I was crazy, it would be very difficult to maintain that. But in fact, uh, students do respond. Not all students, but many do. And so that's essentially, you know, I guess where I get inspiration. But I also think it's important when this question of how do I have hope that so many people struggle with comes up. I think we have to recognize that in fact, the challenges we face today, not just in the United States, but you know, kind of as a human species on this planet, are quite overwhelming. And there's no guarantee we're going we're gonna to be successful. Wanting to change the world doesn't automatically mean you can. So I think part of what we have to do is be willing to go forward, whether it's in the struggles we have in our professions, if we're teachers, whether it's in our political organizing, whether it's just in our daily lives. We've got to be willing to go forward with no guarantee of success. I, quite frankly, don't think a lot of the efforts I'm in, involved with are going to succeed, at least not in the short term, certainly. But that doesn't stop me from doing the work I do. Uh, it's, I think, really more a question of how you define yourself. Uh, you've got to be able to go forward without a guarantee of success. And, and the reason to do that, to keep going forward, of course, is because in doing that, you make a better life for yourself and the people around you. You contribute to a process that you can't predict in, in the future may be very important. And in, in that sense, to use an old um, truism, we do kind of make the road by walking, uh, by defining ourselves individually and collectively as people who care. We create the possibility. There's no guarantee that that road is going to lead us to the promised land, but we do make that road by walking that road. And it's that work that I think allows us all to continue. Thank you so much for being with us. Please give our audience your website so they can access your books and uh, your work. The easiest way to find me is just to put my name into Google, Robert Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, and, and my page will be the first one that pops up, and there's a lot of articles and material there as well as links to books and other things. Thank you again for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Sylvia. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to finish the show with a couple songs by David Rovix that really speak for themselves. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Are people still lynched in America? And what happens when they die? When he begged for his mother to save him, was he resisting arrest when he cried? And how does the lynch mob roam free when we already know who they are? The men who murdered George Floyd and then drove off in their police cars To live with such savage injustice With every new day the earth turns I'm left with no reason to wonder As I watch Minneapolis burn Are people still lynched in America? How many just in the past weeks? From Georgia to Minnesota as the pandemic spikes and peaks Did you see him pinned down for eight minutes? Did you see the knee on his neck? 
Did you see the police station on fire? Did you smell the smoldering wreck? As the National Guard marches in, watch the wheels of history churn in the land of Philando Castile as we watch Minneapolis burn. Are people still lynched in America? And do the poor still die of disease? Are the prisons still full of debtors? Do bodies still hang from the trees? Do the workers still live by the highways? Still struggle to come up with rent? Do families still get evicted when the last of their credit is spent? Do you see all the people who just had to find out what might there be left to learn from the flames that rise from the target as we watch Minneapolis burn? Are people still lynched in America? And what happens when they die? When he begged for his mother to save him, was he resisting arrest when he cried? Each couch by the street has a story. Some were brand new just last year. Looks like days ago, someone had a door key and it was in a living room, not here. Getting covered in leaves falling down. Getting soaked each time it rains. Did someone split quickly, head out of town? Perhaps whoever left these coffee stains. Each couch by the street has a story. I wonder what this one may be. Another one too dry to have been out for long. It was once someone's property. Did they leave their home and move into a car? Find a sofa to sleep on at a friend's place? Did they stay near or go away far? Disappear with hardly a trace? Each couch by the street has a story. One that ended without a yard sale. No one's buying much in the pandemic. Most any such plans are derailed. Along with the crashing economy, all the people who just got the sack could just be a time for society to have one another's back. Each couch by the street has a story, and those stories will soon multiply. Once the ban on evictions is lifted, once thousands more people have died. While we're here in a country that's failed, when the moratorium is through, when they come to evict your neighbors, what will you do? Each couch by the street has a story. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows, to access resources, or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.